Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to new developments in the world of COVID-19 in a segment we call Corona Calls. Our guest is Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. Um, we have a, a mailbag that is bulging with questions specifically asking for help uh, navigating recent infections of either the person writing uh, or someone they are close to. And I, I thought we should dive right into pragmatics. I think this is the fallout from the, the winter wave of cases. Our first comes from Henry in Berkeley, who has a grandson who started testing positive for COVID five days after showing symptoms. Henry asks, is there any way to know when in that span of time he might have been contagious? Yeah. That's a really important question. The best evidence we have now for contagion in people who are infected with the virus is that the virus is clearly shedding in amounts that can spread it to other people 48 hours before people become symptomatic, 24 to 48 hours, somewhere within a 48-hour period. People are most symptomatic just when they become contagious. Oh, become symptomatic. So two days before you're feeling okay, you're what we call pre-symptomatic and you are shedding the virus and you are transmissible. When you become symptomatic, you are at your peak of transmissibility. And that lasts 24, 48, 72 hours then starts to drift off. And it drifts off depending upon the individual. Um, it drifts off within a day or two after that or maybe even at three days, or for some people, it's five days, seven days, even out to 10 days. So it's it's quite variable. So they, the grandson, I, I did not read the full length question, but uh, I surmise from the text of it that the grandson was testing repeatedly and coming up negative on home tests uh, after becoming symptomatic. Uh, the negative tests wouldn't mean that the grandson was not transmissible? The negative tests suggest that the amount of virus that the grandson had at that time of the test was at a lowish level, perhaps too low to transmit, but we're just not certain about that. So we have to go by more large-scale studies where, where we know that pre-symptomatic people within 48 hours are contagious. So what I would say to Henry is that his grandson was symptomatic, and even though the tests were negative, uh, he'd have to assume that his grandson was in a position where the grandson, the grandson could transmit the virus to Henry or to other people, in spite of there the negative. There is a second... Yeah, there is a second part to this question. Henry writes, the grandson has a sister who is less than a month old. How can her parents determine whether she contracted the virus? And if she has, what can they do about it? 
Well, of course, like they are, the grand, the parents observing the child very carefully to make sure the child's asymptomatic, talking to their pediatrician about the pros and cons of testing at that point um, would be another step to take. Frankly, the child being a month old, hopefully mom was well immunized, including the up-to-date vaccine, because those antibodies will cross to the newborn and give that newborn protection. How long does that maternal protection last for? It varies, but typically several months, maybe longer. But we, I think the safe, the safe figure is three to six months. You may have protection. Um, the highest degree of protection is the earliest after delivery. And so, um, which is, of course, the more critical time for the infant as well. So that maternal protection really is, is very good for a few months. Right. We have a, a related question that came in from Jay in Petaluma, who asks, if one doesn't test positive until five days after symptom onset, which is the deadline for using Paxlovid, uh, what do you recommend you do about it? That's a real dilemma. Um, if you're not testing, and I presume the testing, when you say test positive, we're talking about the home test, the antigen test. Um, yeah, the PCR tests are hard to come by these days. They sure are, which is very frustrating. Um, if with the neg It makes it easy with the PCR test because if it's negative, uh, you really can pretty much say that you're not infected with the virus. But with the home antigen test, you really can't say that. Some people take up to five days, some people even longer, but most of the time it's within the first three to five days after you become symptomatic. So what can you say if you're out five days and you've been exposed, but you're still testing negative? You probably have not been infected, but we can't say that with 100% assurance. Oh, All right, uh, at this point, we should open up the, the phone lines to questions from our listeners. 1-800-958-9008 to place a corona call to Dr. John Swartzberg. That's 1-800-958-9008. Uh, one more from the mailbag while the callers pile onto the lines. Lynette in Oakland says, I know how to confirm the effectiveness of an N95 mask by checking the CDC website for NIOSH certification. But NIOSH doesn't certify KN95 masks. That is the, the Chinese equivalent standard. Lynette continues, how can I be sure that a mask marketed as a KN95 is effective against COVID? That's a great question. The KN95, we know the ones that come from Korea um, have been pretty well tested and uh, a very high degree of assurance that they are going to be effective. Um, the ones that come from China, we are less certain about. So checking with the manufacturer. The other thing you can do is uh, directly check with the manufacturer about where those uh, uh, masks came from and to what degree they have been tested. So just uh, take a picture of the, the box or the shipping label and, and work backwards from that on the internet? Exactly. That's the best thing to do. Also, getting them from reputable sources is also very important. Um, there are a variety of companies that per, that uh, deliver these, uh, even though they're not produced necessarily in the United States, that are quite reputable. So that's another 
thing you can do about the KN95s. They're, they're excellent masks if they're uh, properly produced. Also a little, little easier to navigate since they slip over your ears, uh, at least for me. Easy to put them on and off when I'm wearing a bike helmet. Um, <laughs> Sonia writes to ask, I'm 77. My last booster was on September 23rd. If I understand correctly, the efficacy wanes after three months. Should I be getting another booster? Yeah, that's a question that um, an awful lot of people have, and I have as well. We haven't heard from the FDA about that, but the FDA is meeting. Um, I'm I'm not sure what the date is. Sometime, I believe, in early to mid-February, and that's going to be on the agenda. I think there's a strong likelihood that the FDA is going to recommend to people who are at high risk, and Sonia being 77 would be in that category just because of her age. Um, people who are at high risk will get a be offered the possibility of getting a second updated vaccine in the spring, exactly like last year. So that's my guess, but it's only a guess because we have to wait and see what the FDA is going to say. Now, what happened in Canada last week may inform us because the Canadian equivalent to what the FDA um, here in the United States is made the decision to do exactly that. That is offer the vaccine to high risk people as a second dose in the spring. So I suspect that's what's going to happen, but we have to wait and see. In any case, uh, the, the three month window will be long gone for her by then. Um, <laughs> it, it would take a, a deliberation and then a vote by an advisory committee and then a vote by the FDA and uh, then a vote by the FDC before there was an actual uh, CDC before there was an actual rollout, right? That's right. But it's important to remember with this updated vaccine, we have very good data out now through two months and into three months now showing a high degree of efficacy against hospitalization and death. We don't have data yet for four months, five months, and six months, and that's going to be coming out. But if this behaves pretty much like the others, Sonia's correct that immunity does wane, but we do see protection extending out to six months in terms of um, hospitalization and death. And with the older vaccines, we saw protection, um, albeit not as good, but extending out, out to a year. So it's not like Sonia's completely unprotected during this uh, ne during these next three months. Right. Uh, the phone number, if you want to put in a question to Dr. John Swartzberg about COVID or related infectious diseases, 1-800-958-9008. First up on the lines, we have John in Fresno. Good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> this is going to be an unfocused question, but I've had a great deal of help from you over the years, and I really appreciate the site. Looking back at some of the uh, ways along the way, partially lack of knowledge, partially lack of data, this thing has kind of wandered up to some kind of mature, continuing thing. And like this morning when you say you can't get PCR tests, that helped me during the uh, interim period. But looking back, what, doctor, do you think has been the lessons that we should have learned earlier or we learned as soon as we could that we're going to have to apply to the next 
uh, a similar event if unfortunately there is one. If climate change forces a new pandemic, how can we do it better next time? Or what should we look as uh, failures that we have to adjust for? Well, thank you, John, and thank you, thank you, John, and and uh, John. It's been great to listen to all of your excellent questions throughout this pandemic. Um, they've really been helpful in terms of shaping um, what we can dis- information we can disseminate to the public. Um, in regards to your question, we we'd need a whole day of talking together in terms of putting together a list. Three immediate three things immediately come to my mind. Um, One is that this pandemic occurred here in the United States at a time when public health had been really emasculated by underfunding for decades. So one of the messages is uh, that we have to not only adequately fund public health right now, but we have to dependably fund it on an ongoing basis. It's like having a a well-oiled, up-to-date fire engine uh, even though there may not be any fires, we have to have that. So that's number one. Number two is we need a much better system worldwide of identifying these pandemics, potential pandemic organisms, um, very early on. So that's something that we have started to assemble worldwide, but there's a long way to go with this. But we need a much better early warning system to attack this. The third thing that um, uh, is terribly important is communication. I think that we saw this consistently break down uh, at all governmental levels, from the executive um, to the uh, CDC, um, to state public health and even county public health uh, departments. Uh, communication is something that uh, has not been stressed in the education of public health professionals. And it's something that we need to do a much better job with. Um, I think that would help a great deal in terms of uh, alleviating some of the uh, divisiveness that we've seen during this pandemic, because that kind of societal divisiveness has uh, tragically led to an awful lot of people suffering and dying uh, needlessly. So uh, adequate, uh, better communication, better monitoring, and a more robust uh, public health system or three things that immediately come to mind. I was thinking of a fourth Dr. Schwartzberg, which is, it, it was a revelation early in the pandemic when it was confirmed that, that COVID is airborne, that it spreads through the air. And it suggested a fairly straightforward intervention, improve the air filtration and air exchange in the spaces where people gather together and congregate which is a great solution because it helps with all airborne diseases not to mention helping people with things like asthma um it seems to have been uh, very understated as a response to the pandemic it, it would be amazing to see a systematic upgrade uh, of the places where people breathe the same air to to kind of future proof us against future airborne pathogens Yes, let's make definitely make that a fourth thing, and maybe we could put it even higher on the list. You're absolutely right, Brian. Uh, hopefully, we're going to see uh, much more aggressive uh, rulings from uh, organizations like OSHA in terms of how safe, uh, what kind of air filtration we have to have in buildings. 
The problem, of course, with this is it's, it's very expensive and sometimes near impossible with the older buildings to upgrade. Uh, but that's something that clearly has to be done. Uh, as you say, it's going to benefit us from any airborne respiratory infection, much less um, uh, other pollutants. It can particularly be a problem for people with asthma. So good point. All right. Next on the line, we have Sharon in Berkeley. Good morning, Sharon. Hello. Um, I just thank you, Dr. Schwartzberg. I really appreciate your show, and I listen every week. Um, I'm just calling to ask a little bit of questions about masking in public spaces. I know that numbers are high again, and you know I'm thinking about our vulnerable populations that need to do things like grocery shop or may even have kids in college. And I'm curious what your expertise and guidance is. Um, you know, for example. Um, you know, masking in grocery stores where people need access to food or even college campuses on campus. What is your expertise there and are people listening? Thank you, Sharon. That's a, a terribly important question. Um, I think for the individual, uh, you have to do your own calculus right now in terms of safety for yourself. That is, if you are at high risk for having a bad outcome from this, the use of a mask in many public places where there's large crowds of people, I think is very, very prudent. I think for the individual also, part of the calculus is if I've got what I think is just a cold or just the sniffles, um, I have to also be thinking of my community. And that is, I'm gonna wear a mask in places where I could possibly transmit this virus to other people. If we all did that, I think everybody would be much safer. So for on a more practical level, when I'm in a grocery store, I were, would wear a good mask to protect myself because frankly, there's no one else out there thinking of protecting me. Um, I don't dine indoors yet because I think the risk isn't worth it when you can dine outdoors, which I do um, not as frequently as I'd like, but which I do. So those are a couple of exa concrete examples. I think that uh, what public health has done is really said that uh, public health is no longer gonna take responsibility for uh, what people need to do, except give general guidelines. Rather, we're going to tell the individual uh, that you have to take your own responsibility. Um, that um, I completely understand given where people's psychology is right now after almost four, well, four years into this pandemic, um, but it does put a lot of responsibility on us as individuals and us as communities, as part of communities. All right. Uh, staying in Berkeley, next on the line, we have Charlene. Good morning, Charlene. Good morning. Um, I'm, I haven't heard for quite a while, uh, and it may not apply now to the new version, but I wonder what length of time of immunity is conferred after one has this uh, current version of COVID, or any version for that matter. After you've had this version of COVID, 
we think the prote the protection looks like it's very much like with the all the previous versions of this virus, and that is that you have really very robust protection for at least a month to two months. Um, for some people, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, you have so it's behaving very much like the uh, updated vaccine is. So um, it's not the problem is with this virus and with other many other respiratory viruses, the immunity we get either from having had COVID with any version or getting the vaccine is it's not permanent. Uh, it gives us some background immunity that does help a little bit, but it's a not, a, not a permanent immunity. That's why we get COVID over and over and over again. Thank you. Is there... Is there any study, Dr. Schwartzberg, on how the uh, immunity is different based on the, the severity of the course of illness? There may turn out to be. Uh, there's been some hints of this with what we call cell-mediated immunity, uh, that perhaps that may be more robust going forward. But we don't have enough time yet to really ascertain um, the difference between uh, in the difference in protection between an infection with the virus versus the vaccine. So at this point, we really can't answer that question. All right. Uh, I think we will leave it there for this week's Corona Calls. Dr. Schwartzberg, thank you so much for spending another Monday morning with us. You're welcome. Stay healthy. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for next week's, you can email coronacalls at kpfa.org. Or tune in live to Call In Live. Usually we air Monday mornings right after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA 94.1 FM in the Bay Area or kpfa.org anywhere in the world. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Tiegert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.